the, the mantra that people repeated from one office to another was uh, the mantra from the top. So don't ask for permission. Just launch. Hustle. Enlist drivers. Go out. Do the marketing. And quickly, people will wake up and see what a great thing Uber is. That is Mark McGann. He's a former executive at Uber. McGann was the company's top lobbyist in Europe. He came forward in a video interview with The Guardian published on Monday. I was the one talking to governments. I was the one pushing this with the media. I was the one telling people that they should change the rules because drivers were going to benefit and people were going to get so much economic opportunity that when that turned out not to be the case, we had actually sold people a lie. How can you have a clear conscience if you don't stand up and own your contribution to how people are being treated today? McGann has leaked tens of thousands of internal records from Uber. They span from 2013 to 2017, when the company was growing fast. And those documents are the basis of a new investigation called the Uber Files. So the Uber Files are over 124,000 text conversations, emails, corporate presentations, covering a very wide range of Uber's activities around the world. Doug McMillan is a corporate accountability reporter for The Post, and he's part of a team of journalists in collaboration with The Guardian and ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. They have all been diving into this trove of leaked documents. A lot of people know that the story of Uber is about a company that used aggressive, hardball tactics to rapidly expand around the world. What we found in looking through this trove of documents was that the company actually went a lot farther than people realized. They cozied up to Russian oligarchs. They sometimes took advantage of situations where their own drivers were facing physical violence. And they did all of this in a bid for profit and as part of this quest to supplant the global transportation system. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, July 11th. Today, we dig into the findings of this explosive new report about Uber, and we reveal the human cost of Uber's quest for rapid growth. So when you talk about this rapid growth that was happening, Uber expanding to new countries, why was that happening? Like, why was Uber so pressed to be in as many places as possible in this period? Yeah, like many Silicon Valley companies during this moment in time, um, when smartphones were on the rise and venture capital investors we're pouring billions and billions of dollars into tech companies with the mindset of let's get these services to as many people as possible in as little time as possible. And if we do that, you know, we may spend a lot of money doing it. We may burn through mountains and mountains of cash. But at the end of the day, their business plan was we're going to end up with millions of users around the world. Then we can figure out how to turn on the money and mm-hmm. how do we change the business model to make more economic sense after we expand. Interesting. So then tell me how that started to look 
for Uber when when they started to use these quote-unquote hardball tactics to make that expansion happen. What did that look like? There's a few key storylines that we followed here. In Russia, the company was desperate to get a foothold in Moscow. And to do this, they cozied up to prominent Russian oligarchs and actually sold a stake in their company to Russian oligarchs. And they did this at a time when Putin's government was actually being sanctioned for its annexation of Crimea. In Amsterdam, when local authorities were attempting to raid Uber's headquarters, Travis Kalanick, the CEO, actually ordered the computer systems to be cut off from Uber's internal networks so that the police couldn't access any of the data on them. This is a system that they developed internally called the kill switch. Wow, that is incredible. I'm also curious about the relationship between Uber and its drivers. What did these documents tell you about how Uber talked about its drivers? So you might remember this time period when Uber was really growing rapidly. They were threatening livelihoods of people in the taxi industry. And this resulted in a lot of tension and clashes between taxi drivers and Uber drivers that sometimes turned violent. Um, In particular, there was a period of time in the summer of 2015 where taxi driver attacks against Uber drivers, sometimes physical violence, were happening on a monthly or even almost weekly basis. And the Uber files give us some insight into what the company executives were talking about when these attacks happened. We saw Uber executives quickly pivot to say, how do we capitalize on this violence to our own political gain? A lot of the things that Uber was trying to do were trying to appeal to local governments and say, we belong on the streets as much as taxi drivers do. And going against the taxi industry, they would use these incidents of violence to show how barbaric these taxi drivers were, that these people are physically attacking Uber drivers. And we saw this repeatedly in Belgium, in Portugal, in Switzerland, in Germany. In one case in France, we saw the former CEO, Travis Kalanick, make a very striking statement in a text message to his fellow executives. The company was planning a major protest with tens of thousands of riders and drivers. And one of his deputies kind of raised the question, well, could this event put our drivers at risk? Are we putting these people in harm's way? And Kalanick responded and said, if the crowd is big enough, He thought it would be safe. But he also said, if there were attacks, that could benefit Uber too. He said, quote, I think it's worth it. Violence guarantees success. And before we go on, can you tell me what did Uber have to say about these documents in general? I mean, the fact that these documents have been made public, but also about some of the language that you were seeing that suggests that they were pretty callous to the experiences of drivers and and the problems that they were causing in this in this rapid expansion. So we got a comment back from Jill Hazelbaker, an Uber spokeswoman, and she commented on a lot of the individual stories that I brought up earlier. She emphasized that no one at Uber ever condoned violence against its drivers. But she said that there are a lot of things that the former CEO, Travis Kalanick, said years ago that the company would not condone today. On Russia, Hazel Baker said nobody currently at the company was involved in developing the strategy in Russia. And she said Uber's current management thinks Putin is reprehensible and disavows any association with him. On the raid in Amsterdam, she said Uber does not currently have a kill switch designed to thwart regulatory inquiries. 
and that it has not used one since Kalanick's replacement, Dara Koshashahi, became CEO. So one thing that we've seen with a lot of these responses from Uber is that they're acknowledging the mistakes that they made in the past, but they're putting a lot of this squarely on the shoulders of their former CEO, Travis Kalanick. Hazelmaker asked the public to judge Uber not by what they've done in the past, but what they will do in the years to come. And what does Travis Kalanick say about all this? So we heard back from Devin Spurgeon, a spokeswoman for Travis Kalanick, who said that the Uber co-founder helped pioneer a new business model. She said, quote, to do this required a change of the status quo as Uber became a serious competitor in an industry where competition had been historically outlawed. As for the kill switch, Spurgeon said tools to protect the intellectual property are common business practice and are not designed to obstruct justice. She said Travis Kalanick did not create, direct, or oversee these tools, which were vetted and approved by Uber's legal and regulatory departments. On Russia, she said Kalanick only had limited involvement in Uber's expansion in Russia and was not aware of anyone acting on Uber's behalf in the country in a way that violated American or Russian sanctions or laws. So, Doug, tell me where you went to do some reporting on this story and to hear firsthand from people who have had these kinds of experiences with Uber. Yeah, so I went to Cape Town, South Africa and spent a few days. Basically, I just got out my phone and started ordering Ubers. As soon as the driver would pull up, I would turn on my recorder. Hello. Get in the car. How are you? I'm done. Fine, I'm doing good. I'm actually, I'm a journalist. And start a conversation with the person. Um, so if, if, if it's okay, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Is that okay? And basically nine times out of ten, they would start talking to me and opening up about what it's like to drive for Uber in a country that has the highest unemployment rate in the entire world and has the most wage inequality in the entire world by some measures. How long have you been driving for Uber? So, so you just took a bunch of Ubers? You just like... Sure, yeah. Can I just ask, where were you going in all these Ubers? Like, were you just... Imagine you were just like riding back and forth to the airport all day long. Yeah, well, I got a good tour of the city. It's a really gorgeous city. The city itself is around a large mountain in the center called Table Mountain. And I got in Ubers and went back and forth around this mountain, essentially, kind of getting <laughs> tours of the city and kind of understanding the, the local neighborhoods and some of the culture there and some of the sites. But, you know, I didn't really I wasn't really focused on the sites. I was focused on hearing the stories of these people. So what were some of the things that you heard from these drivers in Cape Town? One of the big promises that Uber made when it launched in South Africa, like a lot of places, was that Uber was going to be a stepping stone and an economic opportunity for people who are at the bottom of society and at the bottom of the ladder in South Africa. For South Africa, where one in three people is unemployed, this is a huge potential opportunity. This is the place where if Uber's business model worked like they said that it would, hmm. it could have had the opportunity to help transform South Africa's economy and at least you hmm. know help kind of get a lot of people in this country going in a better path, in the right direction. So many drivers bought into this promise of Uber is going to help them transform their lives. And initially, it did help them transform their lives and did give them hope about creating a better future. One of these people, a former Uber driver I spoke to, was Sean Cupido. I talked to him on the phone. Okay, my name is Sean. I used to drive Uber. That was about four four years ago. 
who lives in Manenberg, which is one of the most violent, dangerous, gang-ridden places in all of Cape Town. Poverty is playing a big role in, in our community because if I had the money that can provide my family into a better area, in a better place, then I would have done that. But now, like, I'm raising three kids. Sean's a family man. I'm a family man, that's right, yeah. <laughs> he has three kids and a wife, and, you know, he's worked a variety of jobs over his years. I joined the police force for two years, and I left the police force and went into um, the printing company. He's been a plant worker. I started doing bodyguard and training. Bodyguard, uh, and right before Uber, he was a meter taxi driver. And that actually got me going into the transport business. He's never really found a job that kind of allowed him to build a new life for himself, create a safer environment for her kids, potentially move to a safer neighborhood. And with Uber, when he started driving for Uber, he s tells me that he started imagining himself doing these things. Uber was like a framework where, you know, you can actually work yourself to a better life. You know, I mean, a lot of people before I joined Uber, the guys that was already on Uber told me, listen, you can make this amount of cash. You can, it's a better way in living. This initially looked like it was true. Sean started driving for Uber. He was making more than he did in his previous jobs. He was able to have some flexibility of when he chose to drive. You know, Uber says this thing to drivers, they can be their own boss and they can work, you know, the hours that they choose to, to work. Initially, he says he loved the job. Um, he loved getting into cars and talking to people. I always saw myself as the doctor or the barman or the priest or whoever they want to talk. And sometimes when you take your, your rider maybe to the airport or maybe back home from a late night or maybe from a, a meeting and that, you always try to talk to that person and ask him, listen, how was your day? And, you know, the, the talk to them was like a happiness for me, and, you know, like they always put a smile on my face. I love that. I mean, it sounds like he almost thought of himself as kind of a therapist of being able to talk to people as they're riding in his car and kind of unpack how their day is going and, and relate to each other that way. Yeah, he clearly found a joy in it. After the break, how Sean's experience with Uber started to change for the worse. Stay with us. So over time, Uber made a number of changes to the service that made it harder and harder for Sean to make the same amount of money. There was a lot of drivers on the road and your chance of getting four or five trips in an hour's time would be two trips or maybe one trip in an hour, you know. And that was about half the number of trips that you normally would do? Correct, correct, yeah. The competition got big on Uber. So this is something that happened in many places where Uber operated, was that they spent a lot of the money that they raised from outside investors to give drivers incentives to come on to the platform and to drive for Uber. And what this effectively did was flood markets with more cars than those markets, you know, potentially could even handle. Hmm. What this model was geared toward was helping passengers and customers. When you open the app, you know, Uber wanted you to see 
a wait time of a few minutes because that's kind of the magic of their service and that's how they hook people in. But what goes on behind getting that time down to a few minutes was making sure that there are drivers sitting around doing nothing all the time, waiting for you to open the app and order an Uber. So mm. so even though this was very attractive for riders, it was basically undermining drivers, making it harder for these drivers to make a living. Yeah, and when Uber first showed up in South Africa, they sized up the market and they went to some local, potential local partners, and they started saying, giving these estimates of, we're going to need 10,000 Uber cars in Cape Town. And this is according to somebody who was at one of these meetings who spoke to Uber. And a lot of the local taxi drivers said that you're out of your mind because there are currently only 2,000 taxi cars in Cape Town. And that if you flood the market with 10,000 cars, then we will all you know, go down. Instead of making 10 trips a day, we'll do one trip a day. I should say here that Uber denied that they ever shared a number of 10,000 cars in Cape Town. But whatever the number... This new influx of Uber cars changed the reality for a lot of the professional drivers in the city who suddenly had to deal with many more competitors on the road competing for the same number of passengers. Uber was taking all, away all the, all the business. So this ended up changing Sean's behavior in a way that caused him to take more risks with his personal safety. Initially, Sean would focus on driving in the areas where he knew he could make the most money and where he knew he would be the safest. So that was, you know, frankly, around the downtown areas and the nicer areas of Cape Town where he could focus on taking tourists back and forth mostly. But once more and more Uber cars came onto the road and over time as he was driving, Sean found himself driving in the more dangerous parts of the city in order to find places where there was less competition. Uber is pushing the drivers into competing with other drivers, you know. They are pushing the drivers into doing things that are extraordinary to what their mindset is. I want to stop there because I feel like this is the part where I start to have kind of complicated feelings. Because, you know, I don't think anyone wants Uber drivers or any drivers to feel unsafe while they're doing their jobs and while they're picking people up and dropping them off. But at the same time, I mean, we have talked so much about how, I mean, what was the experience of like any black person in New York trying to take a taxi before the age of Uber, right? Like taxis would not pick them up, would not take them to neighborhoods that were deemed dangerous mm. or neighborhoods that were not like the wider, more affluent areas. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, people who live in these townships deserve to be served by affordable transportation, too, and, and arguably need it more than the people in the affluent areas of, you know, to have reliable transportation or, or other transportation options than whatever public transportation exists there. So I guess, you know, like, it's, it's complicated, right? Like, yeah. should there be an Uber that only serves the richer places? Um, I don't know. I can kind of see the argument for, like, yeah, well, if this is a viable transportation model, it should be serving all parts of the city. Yeah, I mean, it's a really valid point. And Uber said part of its goal was to open its service to more people and to underserved populations. But sometimes, as we found in our reporting, there was a tension between making the service accessible and keeping drivers safe. And a great example of this tension was one feature that Uber introduced in South Africa, which was allowing people to pay in cash. 
like in many developing nations, there are a lot of people in South Africa that don't have credit cards, don't have debit cards. And the company quickly realized that, hey, in order to serve all these people, we should start allowing passengers to pay in cash. They did this in South Africa. They did this in Brazil and a few other countries around 2016. And they knew that the the give and take on this was that there was going to be more there were going to be more safety incidents we talked to a number of um, former executives and local managers in africa who debated this before they launched it and they thought through this you know is it worth drivers taking on more risk when you know the benefit is you know one uber's going to make more revenue we're going to increase our mm-hmm. market share because we're going to suddenly be able to open our platform and our app to people who don't have credit cards. And for drivers like Sean, there were definitely benefits to this. When the cash came in the system, it actually helped us into getting that extra amount of money to just to put fuel in because, you know, when doing the cop, you have to wait a week to get paid. So he's basically saying that when you have cash, it's actually more useful in some ways because then you can just use it cash from, you know, this morning's ride or whatever to fill up your tank to keep driving. Yeah, a lot of drivers are of two minds on this. They understand that it's more risky to have cash in their cars. But at the same time, they like having cash to go to the gas pump and be able to fill up their gas tank without having to dip into their personal savings, which is what the Uber business model kind of forces them to pay their own costs, including gas. But I, I'm also curious about some of the the risks of having all that cash in your car. I mean, I would imagine that probably makes you a more likely target for robbery. But at the same time, I mean... In the days pre-Uber, like, every cab accepted cash, probably only accepted cash. And so, I guess, was the cash model all that different from what has existed for a long time? Yeah, it is different because of the way that the Uber system works. One, you can order an Uber wherever you are, and it's supposed to show up right where you are. So, effectively, a lot of the criminals discovered that they could tap a button on a phone and have a car with cash, show up right in front of them. Hmm. And this is a a problem that Mm -hmm. Uber has faced all over the world. You know, Yellow Taxi knows how to avoid those areas, stays away from those areas. Uber cars called directly to these areas, including potentially criminals. So yes, Uber drivers can decide which fares they take. And Uber says that it does not punish drivers for rejecting fares. But Sean and other drivers told me that when they accept a trip, someone gets in their car Because of Uber's rating system, the driver is beholden to that passenger in a way that a traditional taxi driver would not be, and in a way that could make it harder for them to take steps to protect their safety. No, with Uber, you have to refrain from what you're saying to the customers. You have to refrain from being angry to the person who you transport to. Because Uber could punish you for judging the person. Correct, 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 yes, correct. Which wouldn't happen in a meter taxi cab. No, no. I can stop that meter cap on the road. I can just tell the person to get out of my vehicle. And the transaction's done. But with Uber, I can't do that. It's almost like the Uber passenger is a little bit like your boss. Yeah, they boss. They boss. They get into your vehicle and they make remarks that you can't actually respond to because if you do that, they will cut your ratings and they will actually say, listen, but you don't need to be on Uber. And then the other thing that Sean pointed out to us was if you are a metered taxi driver, if you're a yellow taxi driver, You have kind of more of a family and a company and a system around you that sometimes can serve as protection. If you tend to rob the person who got cash on you, the the, the guy, the driver of the meter cab will actually notify the other drivers. Most of the the meter cab drivers that knows the person and then then they, they sort out from there. Meter taxi drivers, he tells us, 
communicate with one another and talk with one another and they kind of support one another in a way that Uber drivers do not because kind of the way that Uber is set up is for each person to act as their own company. So how did this all play out for Sean? What, how did his experiences start to change once he um, ended up using cash and going to neighborhoods where he knew that he was at risk? So for a while, he's a very confident guy and he has a lot of confidence in himself and in what, you know, what he described to us as hustling. And he said that for a while, he was proud that he was able to make it work by taking on these risks of driving these more dangerous places of, you know, continuing to find a way to provide for his family, even though the equation of driving for Uber had started to shift for him. However, it all came to a head one night uh, in 2019 when he had a passenger's name appear on his screen. What was the lady's name? Nadine. He accepted the ride. And when I got there, it was actually a female rider that requested the trip. But the two guys actually got, the one guy got to the vehicle and he said that the lady requested the, the, the Uber. Instead of a female passenger, two men got into his car. Nobody named Nadine. And they said that their friend Nadine had ordered the ride for them. I, I already accepted the, 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 the trip, so it was a cash trip also. One man got in the front, one man got in the back, and they drove for a short little while before they got to their destination. They told him to stop. And these were cash passengers that they started talking about, you know, how much they owed. And there was a little bit of a verbal exchange. The guy in front asked me, where's your money? And then one of the men in the front reached over to turn off the car. He turned off the ignition and um, while he was laying over my over my leg, I try and push him down and just uh, while I was pushing him down, the one at the back started hitting me. And then while he was doing that, the man in the back seat first tried to stab him in the shoulder with a knife. The first blow was a glance and did not stab him. The man in the back then apparently flipped the knife over. I think he closed the knife and started hitting me over the head with a blunt side of, of the of the knife and he started hitting me over the head. Eight times hmm. to the point where blood was streaming down Sean's face. He couldn't see anymore. I couldn't see the, the one in the back because my vision was gone. And then he just exited the car quickly. I got out of the vehicle and um, the one in front just leaned over and just drove off with the car. He kind of collapsed in someone's front lawn and a woman came out and called for help. You know, later on, he's lying in the hospital bed while I was lying there, um, the police went to my house and they notified my wife. My wife came there and she was destroyed. She was. She actually felt like she wanted to, to faint because um, her mindset was always, I will always come home unharmed. And for me, lying in that in that hospital bed and for her to see me lying there, it was it was destroyed. I mean, I also felt bad. I felt helpless. His wife shows up and they have a discussion where, you know, they, they realize that, you know, you can't do this anymore. You can't take on these risks and you, you can't drive for Uber anymore. And it's that moment that, you know, he tells me that, you know, he realized that you know, he lost everything. He lost kind of, you know, not only his car that night, they actually ended up recovering his car because there was a GPS unit inside of it. But he lost his career and his dream of trying to build a better life for himself was gone. And, you know, just a few minutes because of this incident that happened. Mm. 
And, and what did Uber do when they heard about this? How did they respond? Yeah, so Sean says that Uber initially reached out and said that they were going to help him and said they were going to provide some support. And explained to them, listen, but I got Isaac, and is it possible for you guys just to replace my phone and my 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 reading glasses and the money? But they, they said nothing. They will say, oh, was they, what they said to me is that the technical staff will do that. The, the technical staff will handle it. I'm still waiting for the technical staff to get back to me, and it's three years, and not even one of them got back to me. So I actually just left it there. Because I was actually losing, I was fighting a losing battle. Wow, that's so sad. I think it kind of speaks to how Uber thinks about its drivers. Incidents happen every day to Uber drivers, and the company has built this legal structure that insulates it from any liability when anything like this happens. They really want it both ways. They want drivers to sign up and they want to, you know, they say that they're going to promise them this great life and they're, they're going to help be a stepping stone to a better opportunity. And then when the worst possible thing happens to these people, where are they? According to Sean, they didn't even respond to his email and they won't even pay for your broken glasses. What did Uber say when you asked them about this particular episode and, and the fact that they haven't actually come through to provide Sean with any reimbursement or help after after his assault. Yeah, so we asked Uber a lot of detailed questions about the story, including all the specific details relayed by Sean about his incident. Uber did not specifically comment on Sean's case, but they did say that in recent years, Uber has taken steps to improve driver safety in South Africa. They did this by giving them the ability to reject cash transactions, by giving them more information up front, uh, in the app about passenger destinations. And they also included a new button that drivers can press to call for emergency security services. They've also begun requiring cash passengers to verify their identities using social media. And what do the documents in the Uber files reveal about how executives were reacting to the violence that drivers were facing in South Africa? Yeah, so one of the most interesting documents we found was a draft presentation Uber executives were preparing to give the South African government in 2014. And this is a time when the country was preparing to rewrite its transportation rules. Uber laid out its vision for what transportation laws should look like. And the most interesting thing was that they specifically asked for cash to be banned from ride-hailing companies. So hmm. a year before... They introduced cash in South Africa. Uber is saying to the government in a formal document submission to South African regulators, it's not safe to have cash in ride-hailing cars, and so you should actually ban it. And so Uber and all of its competitors should not be allowed to have cash payments because that will make these rides safer. One of the other documents that we found in South Africa that spoke to some of Sean's concerns, which regarded Uber's drivers' earnings and their ability to make a living. One of the ways that Uber controls the economics that a driver makes anywhere in the world directly is by the percentage cut that it takes. And initially, um, in the early years of Uber's growth, a lot of times it would start in a country with a 10 or a 15% commission on every trip and gradually ratchet that up. So many of the drivers that we spoke to in South Africa came into the system when it was a, Uber had a 20% commission. And then in 2015, the company starts internally discussing, hey, it looks like that's going good in South Africa. It looks like even though you know there are some 
issues around safety in this country, most drivers are actually sticking around. And not only that, so many people are now signing up to be drivers that we have a waiting list of drivers in South Africa, which is actually pretty unique. They don't have that most places. And that speaks to the issue of unemployment in South Africa. There's so many people unemployed that so many people are trying to sign up to drive for Uber. So Uber uses this to, to its advantage. And internally, they start messaging about Let's raise the commission. It's time to take more of our cut because Uber drivers are not leaving. And in fact, we have a surplus of Uber drivers. So let's mm. ratchet it up to 25% and that'll help us achieve more profits in the country. And locally, one of the policy executives for Uber in um, sub-Saharan Africa um, writes back and says, hey, like this, this is going to be a problem. Um, this is going to come directly out of driver's earnings. And we're already starting to see drivers complain about, you know, various problems that they're having making a living driving for the app. And if you do this, this is a local manager writing to the San Francisco executive. If you do this, then, then this is going to result in Uber drivers striking and protesting and forming unions. And essentially what happened after that was that the executive overrided them. And sure enough, that local manager was right. Drivers did Im immediately start protesting and trying to unionize. Hmm. So Uber declines a comment on these two documents I just referenced. But in their responses to us, they said drivers have found good economic opportunities using their app. They said even though that driver earnings fluctuate with seasonality, gas prices, and other factors, Uber does keep an eye on that. So what ended up happening to Sean after he ended up in the hospital and had this conversation with his wife about how this was too dangerous? Well, immediately he had to find another job. He spent a month recovering from the attack and took the first job he could find, which is working the graveyard shift at a factory, um, which made his life actually a lot harder. He had to go to therapy for the trauma that he experienced. You know, that, that joy and that happiness that he initially had driving for Uber, he found that that was lost. And he not only lost that, but he found that he lost part of his kind of identity as a powerful man and as the man of his family. He felt like, you know, his kids were traumatized. His kids looked at him differently. To see a children going through all that and your wife, it is it's unreal for, for a person because, I mean, I was lucky. I was, I'm actually lucky on that side I was alive because, you know, sometimes people in, in getting Isaac, they, 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 they actually don't get off that easy. He felt like he had been victimized. He was a victim and no longer kind of the powerful man of his family that he had. So he worked through that and, and spent two years in therapy, he says, before he kind of started feeling like more like himself again. He has been working at a factory. And, on, you know, one of the questions that I kept coming back to him on was, do you blame Uber? Is this Uber's fault? And he has an interesting response. He doesn't directly blame the company for what happened to him. Do you blame Uber for what happened to you? Well, I can't blame Uber for that. I mean, I can't even blame myself for that, for that, that things that happen. You know, um, you, you have to be safe on the road. And yeah, my safety didn't come first. You know, I mean, um, I tried to be safe on the road. A lot of people also try to be safe. I mean, the things, a thing like that happened, you can't actually blame somebody. You know, you, you just blame the person that did the harm to you. Yeah, he doesn't directly blame Uber. But he's frustrated with the company. I don't think Uber thinks more about the drivers than their, their riders, you know, because, I mean, they, they're more afraid of losing their riders than the driver. One of the things that I kept hearing from people in South Africa, where, again, the unemployment is so high that a lot of people don't have many options, 
is that these jobs are, you know, maybe not great, but they're better than no jobs, you know. But that is very different from the story that Uber sold the public, which is we're going to create this great opportunity, economic opportunity everywhere we go. In reality, in a lot of places, these jobs are for some of the people at the lowest rung of the ladder, and they are not giving them any opportunity to go up that ladder. Doug, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Doug McMillan is a corporate accountability reporter for The Post. This story was produced and mixed by our senior producer, Ted Muldoon. Additional production by Robin Amer, Renny Svernowski, and Sean Carter. It was edited by Maggie Penman. Additional editing by Courtney Kahn and Craig Timberg. This is just one story from the Uber files. The Washington Post has also been reporting many other stories, so go to postreports.com to find links to the project. This kind of reporting is only possible thanks to the support of Washington Post subscribers. Become a subscriber today and get the next year of news for just $40. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. I will be out for the rest of the week, so you'll hear my amazing colleague, Elahe Zadi, in the hosting chair. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.